We're continuing our study of uh, 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 13. Can I ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13? And we read together from God's Word. 1 Samuel 13. This is God's Word to us. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him, and Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. 
And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And we pray that God would bless this, his word to us. Let's pray together. Father, as we seek to apply this passage to our hearts and lives, we ask for your spirit to be upon us, to guide us and lead us, that we might learn of you, live like you, and serve you in this world. Meet with us now as we seek to apply your word to our hearts. To the glory of Jesus Christ, we ask and pray. Amen. Just to keep my mind in the right place, there should be a PowerPoint to uh, uh, take you through this passage. And I want to begin by thinking with you about the, the big picture of, of Samuel. When we launched into this series on First Samuel, the, the big idea was that the hope of the world was to be found in a baby's cry. It's a theme we'll hear echoed soon as we turn to the Advent season. God would send a deliverer. A baby would be born in in bringing judgment on the serpent for its part in Adam's sin. uh, God spoke and said, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The world was in a mess because of sin. But one day, a baby would be born who would bring the remedy, the the double cure for sin, cleansing us from its guilt and power. And the darker and the more uh, sinful the days, the greater and the more urgent the longing for this promised deliverer. And so the world waited. Waited for the birth of the offspring of the woman, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance. So the, the, the book of Samuel is, is part of this great story of God's promise of a deliverer, the one who would transform circumstances of his people, bringing hope and help into their desperation. And God's people in the story of 1 Samuel longed for this deliverer. Indeed, they longed particularly for the coming of the one who would be the true king. Impatiently, they were unable to wait, to wait for God's perfect timing. So they cried out to God that he would set a king over them to lead them into battle against their enemies. And God answered their prayers, and God gave them Saul, a magnificent specimen, head and shoulders taller than all the rest of the people. 
He was so much bigger, a big man, and consequently, a big sinner. We denote previously that his reign began with a measure of success. He brought aid to the hard-pressed people of Jabesh and Gilead, a kindness that they never forgot. And he crushed their would-be oppressor, a man called Nehash. Now, you'll all immediately realize that the name Nehash in Hebrew means, in English, serpent. Or maybe that passed you by as it did, let me tell you, for me. Nahash means serpent, and Saul had crushed the serpent. And the question was obvious. Was he then their long-awaited deliverer? Was he the one that God would send, born of a woman, to save his people? But, But we all know that, and we see it clearly in our text this evening, that he was not the redeemer of fallen humanity. He was another fallen human. He was not the second Adam. He was just more of the same old Adam. And so as we delve into this uh, 13th chapter, I want to see what, what God's plan is. It unfolds in this season of the history of the people of Israel, what that would mean for us. And three simple points this evening. I want you to see the setting, the sacrifice, and the successor. The setting, the sacrifice, and the successor. Firstly, the, the setting. Now, there's a difficulty here in verse 1. It depends a little bit on on what version of the scriptures you're reading. It's a a very difficult verse to translate. Indeed, nobody knows how to do this. And people have written a whole doctrinal theses on this, but uh, no one knows. It was the normal practice when announcing uh, the reign of a king in the the Old Testament to, to say the age at which he ascended to the throne and then the length of his reign. So if you have an NIV, you'll note that it says that Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. So the the, the translators of the NIV assumed there ought to be numbers there and so they made an educated guess and stuck in some numbers, saying Saul was 30 and he reigned until he was 72. But those numbers were not there. The ESV sticks much more literally closely to the translation. It says Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. And they're suggesting in their rendering that, you know, that, that Saul was anointed as king by Samuel, but then there was a, an interim period, a year before he actually was uh, recognized by the people. And then two years into his reign, he messed things up. Things went pear-shaped, and then he, uh, the successor was sought out. God looked for another. Some translations just leave a gap because no one knows what ought to fill those spaces. We don't know the right answer, and it makes no difference to our interpretation of the chapter, but I didn't want to rush past what is a a textual problem without a comment. So we go back then to the setting. Where is this setting of our story this evening? Well, Saul has established a small standing army to defend the nation. 3,000 troops were constantly deployed, 2,000 with Saul at Michmash, 1,000 with Jonathan at Gibeah. And we know that, that, that throughout First Samuel, we've already mentioned this, that Saul is always portrayed as a procrastinator. 
someone who sits on his hands, someone who doesn't initiate action, someone who's slow to do what he ought to do. And we notice again here, it's not Saul, although he later takes the credit for it, but it's Jonathan, his son, who, who leads his men to engage with the Philistines and does battle with them and is victorious over them. But his actions are a bit like poking a wasp's nest. The Philistines are now enraged. They are going to strike back. They mobilize their entire fighting force to crush any resistance in Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore, more than can be numbered. And we read verses 6 and 7. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So here's the first dilemma that Saul has. They are hugely, vastly outnumbered. But it's not just that they're outnumbered, but they're also seriously outgunned. And if you, if you go to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 19, we read, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. In the aftermath of World War II, the leaders of the three main allied nations, Clement Attlee, Joseph Stalin, and Harry Truman, met at a castle 25 miles southwest of Berlin to, to draft an agreement they called the Potsdam Agreement. And the Potsdam Agreement had two main objectives, the democratization and the demilitarization of Germany all to ensure that there would be no threat to the safety and stability of Europe or the rest of the world through future acts of German military aggression. Germany could not be armed for battle. Her conquerors would ensure this. And that's a little bit like what happened to Israel in these days. The Philistines had mastered the art of producing iron tools and weaponry. And they ensured that this technology did not fall into the hands of their Israelite neighbors. And so we read that among uh, this force of, of thousands, there was only two swords to be had. Only Jonathan and Saul had swords in their hands. Things were not looking good for Israel. Outnumbered, outgunned, what chance did they have against the Philistines? But the Israelites had at their disposal what the Philistines did not. And that is the promise of the covenant favor of God. So we, we read in Leviticus 26, verses 7 it says, You shall chase your enemies. And they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. 
As Moses was preparing God's people to enter into the land of promise, he was reminding them of what had taken place in the past and how in their military conflicts there was a whole different dynamic. So he says to them in Deuteronomy 32, verses 30 to 31, he says, How could one of you have chased a thousand and two of you put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had given them up, for their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. And the people of God, regardless of the number of soldiers at their disposal, or the weaponry in their hands, they could never be defeated by any enemy if they kept covenant with God. And the same holds true for the church in this and every age, that we can never be defeated by this world. There is nothing for us to fear, irrespective of what the odds might be. We began our service with those words. It's not long since we studied them together. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. And we need to get this great lesson. Our first lesson this evening is when everything appears to be hopeless, when God's people appear to be helpless, it is then we are to live trusting in the promise of the covenant favor of God. We trust that God will favor his people. But, of course, that favor is dependent upon his people living in obedience to his commands. And that assurance, that assurance of Leviticus 8, that that one will put uh, 10,000 to flight, was contingent upon Leviticus 26.3, where God says through Moses, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments to do them. Failure to obey God's word, failure to heed his law would lead to disaster. If you look up uh, up the page on your Bible to the conclusion of, of, of chapter 12, God makes this clear. Samuel, as God's spokesman, says to the people, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But... If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Which leads us then to our our second point, the setting and then the sin. The sin, verses 8 to 11. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? Samuel gave Saul a very simple instruction. Wait for me. Wait. But 
Waiting was causing Saul to worry. The Philistines were on the march. The Israelites were on the run. Samuel was nowhere to be found. And in what appeared, at least in his own mind, in his own eyes, to be a great heroic act, Saul came to the rescue and he initiated the sacrifice. No sooner had he finished and Samuel arrives on the scene. And Samuel, already knowing the consequences, already knowing the answer to his question, asks him, what have you done? Now, what had he done, we're not exactly sure. It could have been, it could have been that Saul himself had stepped into the priestly rule and he had himself physically sacrificed the animals. And uh, that's a very serious transgression against God's law. It might have been that he had merely been directing uh, Ahijah. Uh, He was the attending priest. If you look into the next chapter, uh, into chapter 14, verse 3, he was there. Maybe Saul said, Ahijah, go ahead and make the sacrifice. And that is a a lesser uh, infraction, maybe. But however these events unfolded, as the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Indeed, sometimes those sins that we think are little sins are all the more insidious. In the Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis uh, writes these words of instruction to the junior tempter. Uh, The senior devil says, You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, that is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Saul had sinned. When in the Garden of Eden, God came and walked and called out to Adam and and confronted him with his sin, we we see how Adam offers this threefold excuse. He, he, He blames Eve and he blames God for giving him Eve and then Eve in turn blames the serpent. And when Samuel confronts Saul with his uh, sin, Saul blames the the massive Philistine army. He, He blames the melting Israelite army and he blames the missing prophet. It's confirmed to us. Saul is not the the promised deliverer. Saul is just another Adam. And the core of Saul's sin in this incident is that he came to the pragmatist's conclusion that in certain situations, strict adherence to God's word is not necessary. And Saul failed to realize that for God to be worshipped properly and for his word to be obeyed is far more important than the nation of Israel's survival or soul. 
Faithfulness to God's word must be primary. Remember those uh, three young men who, who said to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we trust our God and our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not buy the knee to your statue because faithfulness to God and his word of truth was more important than their survival. The godly sufferer Job testifies, Job thirteen fifteen. though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. In the worst of circumstances, Job trusted in the covenant faithfulness of God. And Saul should have acknowledged his sin. He should have confessed that he had disobeyed. We see that David, when confronted by his sin, later on will do this. But Saul makes excuses. Tim Keller notes that contemporary people examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. Christians allow the Bible to examine them, looking for things that God can't accept. And here is the second lesson of our text. When everything appears to be hopeless, when God's people appear to be helpless, it is then we have to have patience, trusting in the covenant faithfulness of God. We have to have patience. Do you have Patience. Are you good at waiting? Do you believe that if you commit a cause to God at the appropriate time, he will intervene and that when he comes and when he uh, acts, he is never late. He is always exactly on time. You remember Abraham and Sarah. They were not patient. They were not prepared to wait for God. They wanted to take matters into their own hands. And so Hagar is brought into the picture and into the the family home. and, And Ishmael was born. But David learned this lesson. We sang the metrical version of the psalm at the start of our service. I waited for the Lord, he said, patiently. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David was patient. We see later on in the, in the book of 1 Samuel that when the opportunity was handed to him, when he could have claimed the throne for himself, a throne that was promised to him through the anointing of Samuel, when, when Saul was uh, wrapped and delivered to him in the darkness of the cave, he could have taken his life and taken his throne. But he would not harm the king. He waited patiently for God's perfect timing. And the character of the God we're called to worship is a God who is marked by patience. The message of this book that we're desirous to study is that we should learn patience. God ordains waiting as part of his great plan for his people. And God calls you to wait. Because as you wait, he does things to you and and through you and around you that are all very good. He has not forgotten you. He wants you to wait because he loves you. The early church father, Tertullian, who lived around 160 to 225 AD, he, he said that every sin can be traced back to impatience. Again, much of what 
the devil tempted Jesus with in the desert was about, could he wait? Would he be patient? And Jesus teaches his disciples, saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God's children need to learn to wait. We need to learn this uh, lesson of self-denial. We, we need to understand the importance of delayed gratification. God's children are to wait until marriage to experience the delight of sexual intimacy. They're to wait until they've acquired sufficient resources before they might place themselves under crushing debt. In times of prosperity, they are to resist uh, buying more luxuries so that they might release more of their funds to support the work of ministry and mission of God in the world. They're to wait, deny themselves little snacks between meals because there's no little sin since there's no little God to sin against. God's people are to be people of patience, patiently waiting for the covenant faithfulness of God to make itself known. The setting, the sin, and finally the successor. Verses 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Because of his sin, because of disobedience, his impatience, God brings judgment upon Saul. And not just Saul, but the generations of his family after him. There will be no royal line from Saul. There's a failure of truth. And there's a failure of trust. Saul's sins cut him off from the throne. The throne will be given to another. We think of how in in Adam's day his sin cut him and his descendants off from that intimacy with God that he had known in the garden. But when everything appears to be hopeless, when God's people appear to be helpless... It is then that we are to have participation in the covenant family of God. Saul lost his family's destiny. But the amazing good news of the gospel is this, that there is a way back into intimate fellowship with God. There's a way for all of us to experience what it is to be part of God's royal.